Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Okay, so let's start with a little Q&A here. What are humiliating things that can happen to people? Note, I didn't say you. You don't have to tell me your deepest, darkest fears. Hold on, I'm going to get hung up on this, uh, this headphone thing unless I tuck it into my back pocket because it keeps grabbing my arm. Uh, what, uh, what are humiliating things that can happen to people? Getting fired. Okay, we start off really serious. <laughs> what, what else? Forgetting your wallet at the grocery store. Yes. Having your wife or husband not show up at your wedding. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's rough stuff. What else? What's that? Falling, right? Falling when you open the door, you fall somewhere. Or what's that? In the grocery store in front of everyone, falling up the stairs, right? You can understand falling down the stairs. Anyone ever fall up the stairs before? How did you fall up the stairs? Right? Yeah, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. What else? You're late. Yes. For your own wedding, maybe. <laughs> what else? What's that? Oh, losing a tennis match. Oh, yeah, losing. Yes. Ah, so humiliating sometimes, especially depending on who you're losing to, right? Sometimes you lose to someone you had no business of losing to. <laughs> That's hard. What else? Mm-hmm. Oh. You find out long after, and you're like, when did this happen, right? You spill something on your clothing, uh, and, and of course, if you're wearing white, it automatically happens. So, uh, you, you, yeah, you get clo- your, your clothing gets, uh, and you don't know when it bothered to happen. You get something stuck between your teeth, right? No one bothers to tell you. Or where someone does, hey, I'm just looking out for you. And that's, I don't know, I think that's worse. Just ignore it. <laughs> yes, I know there's cilantro on my teeth. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Not bringing your Bible to church. Thank you, Kai. <laughs> yes, Matt. Lose, losing a match in a video game to your son. I feel like that was directed at me. This feels like a personal attack, Matthew. <laughs> Can be embarrassing, right? Wardrobe malfunctions, right? right? I, I remember there was, there was a video or a, mo- uh, a PSA that was put out there where this guy was too high or something or drunk at a party and his fly was down and, and, and everyone told him, they're like, wow, you know, if you were only in control of all your faculties, you would remember to zip up your fly. And that, that has haunted me, right? Because I'm over here like, that does happen. Sometimes you're totally in your clear mind, but you, your zipper doesn't work. You forgot to zip up your zipper, right? Am I the dumbest person in the world because I didn't X, Y, Z examine your zipper or other wardrobe malfunctions? It is embarrassing. It's humiliating. Any other ones that anybody wants to share? Something in your teeth? <laughs> Is it <there> right now? <laughs> uh, there, there's, uh, uh, anyone ever wind up with toilet paper hanging out the back of them when they're leaving a restroom, right? It's like, oh, how does that happen? Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, it was like my last year. I was there for five years. 
my last year of seminary. I'm just about to get my MDiv. It was the end of the semester, and they had an In-N-Out Burger Day, which if you don't know what In-N-Out Burger, it is the greatest burger you can ever have, period. In my humble but correct opinion, it is absolutely true. The best burger, bar none, there's, there's no comparison, at least as far as chain restaurants go. So they had, it was Southern California, they had In-N-Out Burger truck came to the school, and everyone got free In-N-Out Burger. Wow! So great. So I'm so happy. I didn't know about this. And I'm exhausted and stressed out from finals. So I'm like, great. So I go and I get the In-N-Out Burger. I tell them what they want. I'm all happy. And there's everyone sitting outside. There's, there's so many people outside. And I'm like, great. Who am I going to sit next to? What am I going to do? And I have my tray of In-N-Out Burger, book bag on my back. I'm just so happy. And out of nowhere, I just fall. And it all goes everywhere. Everything falls. And I don't know what, how this happened. But in that moment, everyone turned, saw what happened, and began laughing at me. I mean, there was hundreds, if not thousands, probably millions of people laughing at me in that moment. And it was so humiliating. I was like, oh, what's going on, right? And I'm like trying to get this stuff. And to make matters worse, as everyone's still roaring, this one woman comes up, young lady, she comes up, and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can you, do you want to get another one? Stop it. You're making it worse. <laughs> I'm like, God, I couldn't get to my car fast enough. Now I'm upset. I don't have an In-N-Out Burger. I drove my car. I don't want to show my face again there. I drove my car to the nearest In-N-Out Burger, and I got In-N-Out Burger as I'm crying to myself in the car. You're laughing too hard at this, my son. <laughs> Being humiliated is hard. Can you imagine if it just isn't a thing that God let happen, but that God caused it to happen to you in your life? Maybe something as silly as my In-N-Out Burger story. Maybe something is more serious, like losing your job, getting fired. Why would God choose to humiliate us? Can you imagine? What if God, what if there was a moment where God chooses to humiliate you intentionally? There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God is choosing to humiliate you. Why would he do that? As we continue our journey through the book of Daniel, The story goes forward about 30 years from the last text that we read. 30 years of history, 30 years of, of life lived in Babylon. You remember the Jewish people are taking captivity into Babylon. There they are living, and uh, several of the Jewish youth were taken into captivity there. They were trained and served as the king's advisors. They had to time and time again choose to live radically faithful to God in this, this godlit, well, this pagan culture. And once again, over and over again, God proved himself true, even as they lived under the reign of narcissistic, angry, psychopathic King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What? Wait a minute. This is a weird thing, right? So the person writing this text right now, it's not Daniel anymore. King Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. And if I lifted this text out of here, and I just 
put it up there and I didn't give a parenthetical reference, you'd probably say, how great are his signs, his mighty wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. You would probably guess that this came from the Psalms. Maybe King David wrote it. This is a totally changed life. What in the world happened? Right? Because, because just last chapter, which was 30 years ago, but last chapter, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar. He had had a dream where God uh, showed him that there would be a series of kingdoms after his own kingdom, and the kingdom of God would come in power and never be destroyed. And so King Nebuchadnezzar took this dream, and he decided, okay, I'm going to build an idol to myself that basically says my kingdom will never end. I am the most powerful one, the everlasting, my kingdom will endure forever. And God had to show him again and again, no, your kingdom isn't, no, your kingdom isn't powerful, it is not eternal, only God's kingdom is eternal. The one true God, the most high God. And now, 30 years later, he's saying, the most high God, the God of Israel, that God, Yahweh, the one who causes things to be the way they are, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What happened? Don't you want to know what happened? I, I remember uh, I was uh, follow. I've, I've followed for years this uh, ska band. You guys know what ska music is? Anyone remember what ska music is? Thank you. Right, not. It's a very narrow band in the '90s that that ska was popular. Uh, this group, Five Iron Frenzy, this Christian ska core band, loved Five Iron Frenzy. Uh, I was <laughs> I was following the headliner, Reese Roper, and he went to a uh, class reunion recently. And while he's at the class reunion, he sees this guy who bullied him all throughout high school, and he's avoiding him like the plague, right? He just doesn't want, want to be around him. This kid, uh, you, this bully, used to take Reese, and in front of teachers, he said, he picked me up, threw me into a garbage can, and made me sing the Star Spangled Banner. So he sang the whole Star Spangled Banner. The guy let him get out and then beat him up in the hallway. And then after all that was done, the teacher who was there was like, you shouldn't ha let people tell you what to do. So he's avoiding this guy, like does not want to see him in his, uh, in his high school reunion. And finally, the guy corners him and he's like, oh no. And the guy said, hey, I didn't treat you well when we were in high school. Yeah. And he says, I'm sorry. I need to apologize. I'm not that person anymore. What I did to you was wrong. It was evil. I am so sorry. Can you forgive me? Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm sorry. If you ever need anything, let me know. Right? It goes off. And Reese, I was listening to him on a podcast. He said, and I didn't think to ask him in the moment. I was so shocked by his transformation to say, what happened, right? What happened where you realized that you were a terrible person and, and you're willingly, willing to admit that and you've changed your life around? What happened? Well, he didn't get that story, but fortunately, we do. We get this story. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar that the narcissistic, psychopathic, angry, terrible king would turn around and say that God's kingdom, not his own, is an everlasting kingdom? Verse 4. I Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, by the way, uh, commentators, they will often say that this is one of the only, perhaps the only, text in the Bible, written by a pagan. Because this is all written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 4. Or, yeah, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentences by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest, lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, so he has this dream. This is a very similar thing, as opposed to the previous, you know, 30 plus years ago. He didn't demand that you tell them the interpretation of the dream. But he says, I've had this dream. It's bothering me. He calls all of his wise men in. Daniel's not there, presumably, because at this point, Daniel's probably about 50 years old. Right? All the go-getters and all the people trying to prove themselves to the king, they're, oh, you know, they're going. Daniel's proved himself here in this court. And so Daniel, you know, I assume, he takes his time as he's coming in. Okay, king had another dream that's bothering him. I'll get there eventually. Right? So Daniel's coming in. He tells everyone the dream. They don't know what it means. They can't tell, tell him. And so then Daniel comes into the court. And, uh, and the king's like, all right, I guess, I guess I'll tell you the dream again. So he tells the dream again. And, and wants to know what it means. Now, it's a weird dream because, first of all, he sees this, this tree, and it starts off, this tree is huge, and all the beasts are able to get fruit from it, and the birds live in it, and, and it's probably a vision of what we see in the ancient Near East in some cultures, especially the Babylonian culture, this concept of the world tree, where there's this massive, like, cosmic tree, and its roots are in the earth, and it stretches all the way up into the heaven, and Nebuchadnezzar is connecting himself with this tree. Oh, wow, I'm like the world tree. My kingdom is so great, and it connects earth all the way up to the heavens, and I supply for everyone. Look at how amazing I am. And what's weird with this dream is as he's, he's having this dream, all of a sudden the dream goes from the tree and it, right? It says in the text, we're able to be found shade under it, the tree, and then when the Holy One comes from heaven, 
He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree. Okay, that's still an it. Leave the stump. Okay, that's still it. And then in verse 15, he says, let his portion, still talking about the tree, but now it's not a tree anymore because he's using a proper pronoun. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. We don't know what seven periods of time. Could mean seven weeks, could mean seven months, probably means seven years. So it goes from a tree and it, and the same object is now a him. And Nebuchadnezzar, thinking that it's about himself, is scared. Some of you who have employees in a job, you understand what's happening here when no one can interpret the dream. Daniel comes in and immediately King Nebuchadnezzar is thankful because he knows Daniel will be able to do it, right? You have employees, you or coworkers that you work with, and you know the type I'm talking about. They will figure out what the bare minimum is that they have to do to keep their job. And then they'll do just a little bit less. <laughs> right? If you have coworkers or you have employees, you know the people that if you need a job done and you need a job well done, you know who to go to, right? And you know who to not go to. Or if you're a parent and you have kids, right? Yes, you should distribute your chores equally among all your children. But you know the children who are going to do the chores without complaining, without arguing, and they're going to do a full job and not a half-baked job right? And you, if you really need something done, you, you know the kid that you go to. Sorry, kid, that's responsible. You have to do more work now, right? You know it. You know it. It's kind of what's happening here. King Nebuchadnezzar finally sees Daniel. He comes and says, oh, the guy, oh, the man. Okay, you tell me what it is. And Daniel knows. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Why? Because the dream is not a good dream. And he doesn't want to tell King Nebuchadnezzar what is happening and what's about to happen and what the dream means. And we understand that because, yes, King Nebuchadnezzar is angry. Yes, he is a narcissist. Yes, he only thinks about himself. Yes, he is a conqueror. Yes, he destroyed a, a good portion of Judah and then took the rest into a captivity. And yes, he's a psychopath. But from what we can tell from the records during their time of captivity, King Nebuchadnezzar treated the Jewish people with regard and treated them well while they were in Babylon. And so some of you who know that like you've had a boss who's difficult, but, but maybe you've stuck around with this boss, him or her, for a while, right? You're like, yeah, they are difficult, but you actually begin to care for them, right? Daniel knows that King Nebuchadnezzar is a psychopath, but he's his psychopath. <laughs> he actually cares about him. It's been over 30 years Daniel has spent in his his company. He doesn't want to tell him what it is. He's concerned. And I don't think it's because he's afraid of what the king's going to do. God has already proven that he can protect Daniel and his friends from the king's madness. I think he actually cares about Nebuchadnezzar so much he doesn't want to tell him what's about to happen. In our lives, there is a thin line between mercy and enabling behavior. Mercy is not getting what you deserve right? Mercy is when, uh, let's say you have a kid and they get a traffic uh, ticket for speeding, right? Mercy is saying, look, what you did was wrong. Please don't ever do this again, but I know you're in college. I'm going to pay this ticket the one time, okay? That's mercy, not getting what you deserve, not getting the punishment of what you deserve. Uh, enabling behavior would be saying, this is your 30th speeding ticket, and I'm going to continue to pay off your speeding tickets, right? You're shielding someone from the natural consequences of their own action. 
There is a thin line between mercy and enabling behavior, but there is a line, right? It's like if your buddy is uh, too hungover to go into work, and you call in and say, hey, he's sick, he, he can't come into work. That's enabling behavior, right? Because they're not sick, they're hungover, they can't come to work, right? That's enabling the behavior, uh, shielding from the natural consequences of actions. And so I think Daniel, he's over here, he loves, and we tend to enable with the people we love because we want to see them shielded from the natural consequences of their action, don't we? I don't, I do. So Daniel, he's like, he's alarmed. I don't know if I should say anything. Second part of verse 19, the king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. So the king knows. He's like, look, just tell me. I just want to know the truth. Rip off the Band-Aid. Belteshazzar answered, that's Daniel, and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven and say, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So he says, it's about you. Yes, your kingdom is vast, but you refuse to acknowledge God's authority in your life. And so God will humiliate you until you recognize that God has put you here, that God is the one who is ultimately in charge, that God is greater than you or anything you will ever build, that heaven rules and you do not. So God is about to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about what, what humbles people, what humiliates people, what embarrasses people in their life. And most of the things we said were funny, but, but my goodness, can you imagine if your boss came into you and said, hey, uh, you're not doing a good job. We don't think you're in the right position. We're going to demote you. And we're going to take away the benefits that you have, and we're going to decrease your salary. You're going to lose your title. You have to change offices or cubicle spaces. How would you respond if you heard that? I know I wouldn't respond well. Can you imagine if a parent said to the kid, hey, like, uh, you don't understand what it is to be a part of a family, so we're going to demote you to living on the couch. Right? You're taking you out of your bed, and you're going to go live on the couch. I mean, utterly humiliating. How would you respond if someone came up to you and said, you know, you're really arrogant. 
you be taken down a few pegs? Man, if someone came up to me like that, I would say, I'm not arrogant. Are you kidding me? I'm the most humble guy around. I wouldn't respond well to that. By the way, the protagonist of this story is Nebuchadnezzar. And the way stories work, every story, even stories in the Bible, is that we are supposed to identify with the protagonist, Nebuchadnezzar. Why would God allow Nebuchadnezzar to be humiliated? Why would God allow us to be humiliated? I know I wouldn't respond well. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end, and presumably now Daniel is writing this because Nebuchadnezzar you know, wouldn't have been able to write this, but maybe Nebuchadnezzar is writing this after the fact. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking in Babylon. My guess is he's probably walking uh, up up top in the gardens. The gardens of Babylon were well-renowned. He had married a wife from a very lush area. And when he brought her to Babylon, I kind of think the middle of the east area, not a very lush place filled with lots of green vegetation, right? So she probably looked around and went, uh. So King Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, I'll build you a garden. The garden could be seen over the top of the castle or of the uh, Babylon's walls. Uh, it was huge. It was lush. It was acres and acres wide and long and amazing. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar had invented a way to bring water uphill in an aqueduct system in order to feed this garden. That's how amazing it was. He's probably walking on this garden thinking about, it's about a year later, so he skated by for a year without this this pronouncement happening against him. And a year later, he's, he's thinking about the dream and he's like, ah, but look how great I am. No one can compare with me. And as the words are still in the ma- his mouth, an angel from heaven pronounces judgment upon him. He loses his mind to the point where he starts eating grass off the ground like a cow. How utterly humiliating. We don't have much records of the last 30 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign because typically if you're paid to keep records of the king, you want positive stories, not negative ones. We do know there was a seven-year period of time where King Nebuchadnezzar was unable to rule and that his son took over rulership for him. A seven-year period that, that was a gap in his rule. I think this was it. He was driven mad. He was driven insane. Can you imagine the court attendants chasing after him? Oh, my Lord, no, you know, as he's trying to eat the plants, you know. Just utterly humiliating. Think about times of your own humiliation, and I'm not talking about having toilet paper hanging out your back as you go out of the bathroom. But think about, you know, some of us have, have gone through uh, the destruction of a marriage. Some of us have gone through a divorce. 
That's hard. That's humiliating. Some of us have been abandoned by loved ones. Think about, uh, think about if one of your kids did something so bad that it made the nightly news. Or they get arrested in your home. Or a spouse gets arrested in your home. You know how humiliating that is? You know how hard that is? Think about those times where you spoke boldly and proudly about something that you knew exactly what you were talking about only to find out that you weren't. Think about when you've messed up at work and you've had to go and apologize to adults. Adults don't apologize to each other, do we? You've had to go and eat crow and say, I was wrong. Think about if your finances got so destroyed that you lost your home, you lost your apartment, you get evicted, you get foreclosed upon, you have to file for bankruptcy. It is so utterly hard, isn't it? So utterly humiliating. You talk to other people and you're like, well, I had to file for bankruptcy, right? It's so hard. It's so difficult. And then we understand that God is in control of all things. Why would God allow you to go through that humiliation? Why? Why are you allowing me to go through this humiliation? Why do you allow Nebuchadnezzar to go through this humiliation? Is it because God hates us? Is it because he's angry with us? Is it it because he wants to destroy us and ruin us and just live these these humiliated, pathetic lives? Is Is that why he does it? Verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and said, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done. Wow. Look at this posture. He's, he's even saying, no one can question God. If your life isn't what you want to be, too bad. You can't question God. I mean, this is like the book of Job level stuff here. God is God and he can do whatever he wants and he's still good even if I don't like it. Verse 36, at that same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor was returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Sometimes God restores in our lives, and sometimes he has us blaze new paths. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was restored to him. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Why does God humble us? Why does he humiliate us? I think he often, not all the time, but often when we, he humiliates us, he does so that, so that we can learn to enjoy his authority. So that we can learn to enjoy his rule, his reign, his power, his control in our life. He knocks us down. He allows us to be embarrassed. He allows us to go through those hardships that are humbling and humiliating so that we can enjoy, learn to enjoy his authority. Learn to enjoy his authority. And by the way, I, I think I'm, I'm convicted, Ronnie, and Ronnie agrees with me on this. I think we are going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in the new heaven and the new earth. 
Like I said at the beginning of this, if we rip this out of context and I just put it up on there, I'd say, where is this from? You would say, this must be the Psalms. This must be King David. This must be Job. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is God. He's going to do what he wants and we can't complain about it because it's God. I mean, to get to that place in your life, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'm at that place in my life. When things go sour, I'm like, God, what are you doing here? I don't get to the point where I I genuinely say in my heart of hearts, all right, God's God and he's gonna do what he wants. I mean, the spiritual maturity that he shows here. And by the way, how were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they were saved in the New Testament, through faith. They didn't fully understand the object of their faith, but in the Old Testament, they were saved the same way we are saved by faith, by trusting in the one true God. We are saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again, and then we are forgiven, we are saved. Same thing in the Old Testament. They didn't fully understand who the object was in the person of Jesus Christ, but they understand the one true God. That was how salvation happened then. Remember, Abraham... uh, believed. Abraham trusted God. Abraham had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. They were saved in the Old Testament, same as they were in the New Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar shows his trust in God. He doesn't have a perfect theology. He doesn't have a perfect walk, but I think this is a saving faith. I think we're going to see him, the angry, narcissistic psychopath transformed by God's humiliation in eternity. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor king of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God will humiliate us sometimes so that we learn to enjoy his authority. It's a weird thing to say that, enjoy his authority, right? Because we tend to, as we saw last week, the word authority, we tend to have a negative connotation, don't we? We're like, eh, you know, I don't know about that. Because we see a lot of abuse of authority. But God's authority, it's different. I mean, how many of you like baseball? How good, thank you, Brian's hand was the first one up. <laughs> um, how, how many of you would enjoy baseball if there were no rules to baseball? Would we even have baseball right? Like people are bringing hockey sticks to the game and and they're bringing basketballs and you can run opposite direction. You can add bases. You can take away bases. There's no rules. Three outs, 20 outs. Oh my goodness, right? (laughs) Like there's no, you wouldn't enjoy it. You wouldn't enjoy it. God's authority is like that. It sets up those boundaries so that we can enjoy life, not for our detriment so that we can enjoy it. Imagine if you had a pool, right? We like to swim. This is a good time to talk about swimming in pools. But, but how, what would you have if you had a pool with no liner? What would you have? A wet ground. There has to be borders to the pool so that the water stays in. Without those borders, you've got wet ground. You've got nothing. You have to have those borders. You have to have those boundaries. Otherwise, you don't have that. That's what God's authority is like in our life. When we learn to enjoy and appreciate it, when God says, hey, don't do this. Hey, do this. He's not doing it because he's like, "Ah, I'm just messing with them. You know, I'm just jerking around from one place to the other and trying to make them crazy. No, he's saying, I've set up these guidelines, these moral things for your good so you don't hurt yourself with sin. Or a house, right? Imagine if you live in a house, you live in an apartment, but, you know, they didn't follow the standards and practices of building. 
So maybe they didn't use insulation in your walls, or maybe they didn't put on a good roof, or maybe they didn't bother to use, you know, nails to put the frame together. They just kind of, you know, leaned it up on it. it the house is going to fall apart. You have to have those boundaries. That's what God's authority is like in our lives. That's what his authority is like. And so I think oftentimes when we have this humiliation that happens in our lives, it's for one of two reasons. One, he is knocking us down a peg like he did with King Nebuchadnezzar, right? We had a pride issue. We thought we were great. We thought we were number one in life. And he says, no, I got to take you down. I think the other reason sometimes is that because God allows us to go through humiliating experiences so that we can have compassion on others who have gone through similar things so that we can have perspective and we as Christians can minister to those who don't have hope. I mean, you think about um, uh, if you're, you're a woman, you have, have kids and your husband leaves you or your partner leaves you and abandons you. I mean, that's, that's rough. It might not be through any, any, uh, any fault of your own. Now you're a single mom, right? And you're trying to do the hard job of, of raising a kid, the admirable job of raising a kid on your own. And then as you've made it through, you, you've made it through all that, you've processed it, you've come out on the other side, God's given you grace and support. And then you see another single mom and she's having a hard time. And maybe she doesn't have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You go out and you reach out to her and you can say, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to encourage you. There's a God in heaven. He loves you. He's in this with you. He got me through it. He'll get you through it, and I will walk alongside you every step of the way. Or any number of other scenarios. You go through bankruptcy. You lose your home. You lose your house. You have a kid that goes off and does things that embarrass you and the family and the family name. You see someone else in that pain, you can then go around and turn around and say, I'm going to walk with this person. I know what the pain that they've gone through, and I will walk through it with them, and I will bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God allows us to go through those situations so that we can help others. And I don't know, right? Like, my experience has been that those of you who <laughs> need to find humility because your pride is too high will never question if your pride is too high, <laughs> right? Which is why God knocks us down a peg. And those of you who are here that are living a humble life, you are probably here going like, oh man, am I really arrogant? Is God going to humiliate me now, right? It's always backwards in my experience, right? It's like the ones who need to be humbled uh, won't humble themselves, and the ones who need to be encouraged uh, will continue to beat themselves up, right? So I guess they're, they're, the litmus test for this is, is this. In your life, can you put others as more important than yourselves? Can you give up your wants, needs, and desires for the greater good of somebody else and somebody else who can never repay you? somebody else who can never give back to you. If you're able to do that, I think when you're going through humiliating circumstances, it is God giving you a greater compassion. It is God working in that situation so that you are able to go and share the love of Christ with those who have no hope. Here's the attitude the Apostle Paul says that we should have. One of the hardest texts in all of Scripture, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Ah! Look, most of you are wonderful people. I have no problem thinking that you are better than me. However, there are people in my life who I have met that are most certainly not better than me. And I could never think this way 
apart from the power of the Holy Spirit within me. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Be like Jesus. Humble yourself. Humble yourself or God will do it for you. Humble yourself and realize, ultimately, I am a servant. Christian, if you are here and you've trusted Lord Jesus Christ, your calling in life is to follow in the footsteps of your master. And what did Jesus do? He came to serve, not to be served. Humble yourself. Sometimes God humiliates us so that we will learn to enjoy his authority. Humble yourself before God turns you into a cow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for King Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you for the testimony that he gave us of your power. And thank you that I think those commentators who said this is the only portion of Scripture ever written by a pagan, I think are wrong. I think this was a former pagan, someone who experienced your power. It took him over 30 years to finally understand it and appreciate it and submit to your power, your authority, but he did so. And this was his handwritten testimony. I think this was written by his own hand because Daniel could have recorded it, but it wouldn't have been as powerful coming from Nebuchadnezzar's own lips, from his own fingers as he's writing this down. This is his testimony about how you changed him. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for those who are filled with too much pride, who think of themselves too highly, who, who think of others too lowly. I pray that you help them to have the, the very character of Christ, who being God in the flesh, still humbled himself and lived as a servant. I pray, God, the Holy Spirit, you'll give them the power to humble themselves. Father, I pray for those who are here who are already living in humble, humiliated lives. I pray that this text doesn't crush them and, and, and force them in this false humility, but instead, Father, you will raise them up. And you'll, they will know that, Father, if they are walking in humble means, that, Lord, they are, Father, they are walking in the footsteps of their Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are in the place where they can have the most impact for the kingdom of God, where they can love people the most deeply because they're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we partake of communion in a moment here, I pray that you examine our hearts. Reveal to us the prideful areas that, that we need to surrender to you. And reveal to us the places where we need to be encouraged and lifted up. But help us to realize, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Help us to realize that as we celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded that King Jesus shed his blood for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted into your family, and so that through his resurrection power and the person of God, the Holy Spirit, we can walk in the beauty and glory and purpose that we have in Christ Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. May we rely on him to find humility. May we rely on him to be encouraged. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.